Time has produced some of the most incredible humans to walk the face of this planet we call home. People who've endured the most harrowing ordeals, pushing their body to the extreme. Whether it's plane crashes, abduction, jungle survival, or even medical anomalies, we explore them all. Who are these people? What happened? Where are they now? Join us to find out. Not me, not today podcast. Hey guys, it's Leisha and Kenny here, and welcome to another episode of Not Me, Not Today podcast. Hello, and hello to everyone wherever you are in the world. How are you doing? I'm doing really good, thanks. Yourself? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. It's been a nice week. And as another week's gone by, it leaves me with one question. Leisha, what's the story? Today's story is about Mauro Prosperi, who survived nine days in the desert after losing his way during a sandstorm. This story is a test of will and endurance, mentally and physically. I hope you enjoy it. So this week, we have some trigger warnings of suicidal thoughts and some graphic detail of killing animals to survive. Okay, let's do this. Mauro Prosperi was born in Rome, Italy in 1955. He was a police officer and an avid fitness fanatic. He was high energy, enthusiastic, competitive, stubborn, strong-willed, passionate, and admittedly selfish when it came to those things. His main passion was running in pentathlons. Mauro was an athlete, and he dabbled in it professionally as well. Long-distance running and cross-country running took up large parts of his life. Pentathlons, for those of us that are less familiar, is an Olympic sport that comprises of five different events. Fencing, freestyle swimming, equestrian show jumping, and a final combined event of pistol shooting and cross-country running. Mauro did it all. That sounds so intense. (laughs) Not my type of thing, but you can't fault the endurance and discipline that must take. Yeah, for sure. The dedication and constantly pushing yourself to the limits and those kind of activities. Yeah, and for Mauro, it was always about pushing yourself, testing your abilities and winning. Participation was not enough. If he was entering a competition, he entered it to win. So when Mauro took on these competitions, he put everything into it. He became focused and driven, almost consumed by the task at hand. He was always focused on the goal. Mara always had his eyes on the prize. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and it wasn't the sights of the top of the mountains or the views of the large valleys that got Mara's heart racing. It was the medal, ideally the gold medal. He did this to a fault, depending on who you'd ask, and I'll elaborate a little bit later on that. Mauro's main job was a police officer in the Sicilian town of Acitreza, which is a little town located on the coast of the foot of Mount Etna. He'd been working and living there since 1973. He worked doing smaller police work like crowd control on horses, which wasn't really where Mauro's heart was. However, in Sicily, the police force fund athletics training, something which very much did interest Mauro. He also got to use his athletic skills to his advantage in his job, like horse riding, running and keeping fit. Being a police officer was more of a way for Mauro to pay the bills and be encouraged and funded to pursue his passion. One day, Mauro met a beautiful woman named Cinzia Pagliara at a warm-up to a pentathlon fencing event prior to the Olympics. They reminded her of ancient knights battling. Nice. (laughs) Cinzia was working as an interpreter between Russian and English. She was a strong-willed, independent, ambitious, intelligent woman. They fell for each other instantly. She was enamoured by his passion, enthusiasm and drive. He had ambition and a passion that she hadn't experienced before, and he was taken by her independence and beauty. It seemed like anything was possible with him, she said in an interview. It was a passionate whirlwind romance, 
and they were married within six months of meeting. Pretty soon after, they welcomed three children. Mauro loved his wife and children. However, the passion and drive that Chancia was once so drawn to was becoming too much. Instead of Mauro fitting his athletics around his family, he was trying to fit his family around his athletics, something that didn't sit well with Chinsia. Hmm. All too often, she was at home with the kids, whilst Mauro was off working, running and training, entering competitions from all over the country that would take him away for a few days at a time. Running for me meant freedom. It's love. It's everything, said Mauro in an interview. Mauro had a strong drive, but he was leaving Chinsia and the kids behind. She felt he was missing precious moments with the children. She wasn't asking him to give up his life, but more to fit it in with his family life and responsibilities. Mauro loved and wanted the children, but Chinsia felt he didn't really realize or understand what that meant. But his passion came before everything else. Mauro had friends that were into his passions. He had been doing it so long that he had quite a collection of friends that truly understood his feeling of freedom. One of those friends was Giovanni Manzo. Giovanni had known Mauro for about seven years. They had run together at many events and trained together. Giovanni had a passion and a drive similar to Mauro's, but it was more of a spiritual journey for him. He was interested in pushing his body and experiencing something new. So he proposed the Marathon de Sable. Oh, I've heard of this. It's the toughest race in the world, right? Yes, and I'll tell you about it because it's intense stuff. Some of you may have heard about this, but for those of you who haven't, I'll elaborate. The Marathon de Sable literally means Marathon of the Sands. It's a five-stage race that takes place in Morocco in the Sahara Desert every year. It typically takes place in April. April is a windy month and there are usually up to 1,300 contestants nowadays, but back in 1994, there were only 80. Anyway, it takes place over six days, and it's 251 kilometers long. It's known to be the toughest foot race on Earth. It is brutal. So brutal, in fact, that there is a disclaimer you have to read and sign before you start the race. You have to tell them where you want your body sent in the case of your death. That's mental. I know, right? And the terrain is tough. It's expansive, it's desolate, and it's dry. You experience extremes in terrain with lots of mountains, dry, uneven rocks, enormous sand dunes, some as high as 50 feet. The weather is extreme, the air is hot, it's dry, it's relentless. At night, the temperatures fall to freezing. The sand beneath your feet is scalding and it covers your skin and your hair and your nostrils. You're dealing on occasion with sandstorms. You need to wear goggles to protect your eyes. Some wear scarves to protect their face. Hats to protect your head. And it needs to be light, breathable and flexible. Your shoes wear significantly. It's a test of endurance, mentally and physically. And this takes place across five stages. Jeez. Yeah. In 1994, the first stage started in Fumsagi. The first day was 18 miles. You went across gentle rolling salt beds. It's very dry, and the rocks are pretty jagged and sharp, and you ended at the base of mountains. Now, most of us would think that sounds pretty tough, but it's an easy start and designed to warm you up. There's nothing quite like an 18-mile dry run as a warm-up. Mm, I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> <laughs> So stage two, day two, is longer. 
It's 24 miles long. It's difficult, rocky and technical. It's pretty straight and long, but the land is desolate. Stage three, day three is 18 miles. This time it's through sand dunes, nicknamed Dunes Day. This is one of the more brutal days. You're walking up and down weaving sand dunes 30 feet high. Sand unsteady and moving beneath your feet. It's expansive and empty, devoid of plant life and animals. The best way to get up and get down these is to do them together, using everyone's footsteps to create a type of staircase in the sand for the runners behind. Such a good idea. Shame about the person who goes first, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, stage four, day four, is where it really separates those who are and are not able to continue the race. It's 53 miles. It's a map trail that looks like a snake meandering through the desert. It's designed to push and crush you. It's pretty much a cycling of the previous terrain in their stages, but this time it's all in the one stage, from sand dunes to rocky mountains and hills. There are people at certain checkpoints right this race who hand out water to help rehydrate you, but that's about it. You have your own water bottle and you make it last until the next checkpoint. You need to carry the bare essentials. Most runners' food comes in the form of protein and energy bars. Dependent on the runner and the weather, it can take anywhere between 10 hours and 36 hours to complete this stage. Any longer than 36 hours, and you are disqualified. That's very fair of them. (laughs) Sorry for my constant sarcasm. It just seems like absolute hell on earth to me, and they're doing it for fun. I love the rules, though. (laughs) Hell on earth is really an understatement. So, back to Mauro and how he came to be in this race. Giovanni, a friend of Mauro's, told him about the race. It was a test of endurance and something he knew Mauro would be interested in. Proposing the idea to Mauro was a no-brainer, he said in an interview. He knew Mauro had the mental and physical capabilities to complete it. Giovanni also knew that Mauro had a wife and three children at home. So he offered him the information and the option that if his life would permit him to be able to join him in the Marathon de Sable, he could. Giovanni expected Mauro to discuss it with his wife and work out a way to come with him. Mauro, as we said before, was driven and passionate and competitive. Running took priority in his life. It wasn't even up for conversation. Mauro had his mind set to it. He was going. He accepted. He didn't discuss it with his wife. The conversation went, I'll leave in April. Mauro admittedly said it was selfish and knew it was, but he went anyway. That's ridiculous. I know. And Jinzia was furious. Mauro said she was openly unhappy. It was written all over her face. He just pretended not to notice. Giovanni and Mauro spent months training together. Mauro said he noticed that when they were training, they would reach the top of the mountain and Giovanni would take a deep breath and look out onto the horizon soaking up the view and the experience, living in the moment and taking one moment to absorb what he was doing and where he was. Mauro knew they were different and competing for different reasons. Giovanni was racing to find himself and show himself what he could do, pushing his body and his soul to the extremes and use it to find internal strength and accomplishment. Mauro, on the other hand, was not. He was in it to win it. I am very competitive. For me, participation is not important. Winning is. Some would say he had the eye of the tiger. (laughs) The day came for him to leave. 
He hugged and kissed his children and just turned around and essentially ignored Chinsia and left. So, April 10th, 1994, Mauro and Giovanni are in Morocco and starting the race. On day one, the wind was harsh. It was strong. Giovanni said in an interview that he's used to wind. In Sicily, it's prone to strong winds, so he was used to it. However, the wind here was different. It was strong, at times storm-level strong. They paced themselves and ran together for the first stage of the race through the salt beds, wind whipping at them. They ran the full 18 miles, rehydrating and resting at the checkpoint. Day two. This is where the racers tend to break off into individuals. They run at their own pace. This is usually to help with the endurance. This helps them to stop burning out too soon or being too slow. Everyone started together in the morning. Eventually, they were all running almost entirely alone through the rocky technical landscape. Despite each runner becoming separated during the day, running at their own pace, they all met at the checkpoint at the end of the day, rehydrated and rested. But also, they got to catch up and somewhat socialise. I'm sure they were a bit too tired to be that chatty. But day three, again, they started out together, but separated throughout the day. Day three is dubbed Dunes Day because of the gruelling terrain, moving sand dunes for 18 miles. Any of us who've been to a beach and tried to play games and run will know it's tough work. People actively train on beaches and sand because of the resistance. But this is not wet beach sand where the waves have licked it flat. These are dunes. Soft, moving sand is so much harder. Can you imagine a step machine made of sand? That's pretty much a sand dune. With sand dunes, you've got the risk of sand collapse as well. Have you ever been buried by friends or something at the beach? Yeah. You know that feeling when you can't go out? Imagine that, ten, hundred times as bad. Ugh, so bad to think about. Well, with day three being completed, they rest. Which now brings us to stage four and day four. They both knew it would be a turning point of the race, the most gruelling section. They knew that most likely they wouldn't be seeing each other at the end of that night like they had the previous three nights. Here, you go it alone. This leg of the race is where the true feats of endurance lied. Mauro was determined to win and determined to come in the top 10. Giovanni knew it would be this part of the race that they would break up and possibly not see each other for an extended period of time. Each racer approaches it differently, but the main thought process is to keep your priorities straight and that priority is not to lose focus. You have to keep focus for an extended period of time in harsh temperatures and extreme terrain. The weather that morning was harsh. It was hot and there was a strong wind blowing, a wind that they had to walk into and against. They reached a section of open desert and this is where Mauro wanted to break off and pick up the pace. It was 25 miles long and two and a half miles wide. He took off, cutting over small sand dunes. A while later, all hell broke loose. The wind picked up and became enormously strong. It started to pick up the sand around him in a wild flurry. Mauro was in a sandstorm. The wind was lifting and moving these sand dunes. Small sand dunes are much more dangerous than large ones. Small sand dunes walk and move. And as we touched on before, if you're not careful, you could be buried alive within minutes. 
well aware that he could be buried alive if he didn't keep moving and trying to stay on top of the sand, Mauro marched forwards. He kept moving and moving, not really able to see more than a few feet in front of him. Even still, most of that was desert. The sandstorm lasted for eight hours. Mauro walked for eight hours, unable to see, in fear of being covered and buried alive. When it stopped, he was completely alone in the desolate lands. Exhausted and in need of some rest and refocusing, he decided to spend the night in his sleeping bag and wait for the next day to work out what to do. I'll continue tomorrow. The race is lost anyway, he said to himself. Which must have been so annoying since he's so competitive. What actually happened to Giovanni? Well, Giovanni admittedly runs slower than Mauro because, as we said earlier, he's there more for a spiritual experience than to win or to place. Giovanni did not take off over the sand dunes like Mauro and so did not experience the same sandstorm Mauro did. However, that's not to say he didn't experience some extreme wind and weather. He was a little surprised when he reached the first checkpoint and Mauro wasn't there, since he'd already taken off ahead. Giovanni wasn't worried yet. He knew the weather could be tough and can cloud your view and make going the wrong way or a longer way possible. The evening wore on and there was no sign of Mauro. It made him a little concerned, but he was still hopeful because it had only been 24 hours. But he also felt a little lonely. Because of the extreme drop in temperatures at night, Mauro and Giovanni had huddled together in the previous nights. Tonight, they were on their own, having to brave the cold and the elements alone, which was only a constant reminder to them that something else was happening that they weren't fully aware of yet. The next morning, Mauro was up early. He folded his sleeping bag, ate an energy bar and went back to running, determined to get back on track and finish the race. He was convinced he'd come across some other runners or walkers. The race is completed by a range of different competitors. People just like Mauro who are in it to win it. He knew that they'd be long gone and he didn't have a hope of running into them. However, he did know that other people do the race as a sense of accomplishment no matter how long it takes, even if they walk or jog it. He had hoped that he would run into them and regain his course and run the rest of the race. That was not the case. Mauro was perplexed to find absolutely no one after hours of walking and running. Nobody, not a single person, just miles and miles of empty desert as far as the eye could see. Oh wow, can you imagine that? How he must have felt. It must have been so hard not to be overcome with panic. When did they notice or raise the alarm that he was missing? Well, they raised the alarm after he hadn't been seen the next day and none of the checkpoints had seen him since. The organisation didn't stop the race. This had happened a couple of times before, but a search rescue went out and they were usually found within a couple of hours. They reassured Giovanni that they would find his friend and not to worry. They sent out jeeps via land and a helicopter. All Giovanni could do was wait, hope and trust that they would find his friend and bring him back by the end of the day. Now remember, we are on day five. So Mauro trucks on, unaware that he's lost, but absolutely certain he will be found. Certainty that lasted until late afternoon, around sunset, when he saw a helicopter. 
He had a flare. You are given these flares in the case of an emergency. This was one such emergency. However, the flare they do give you is about the size of a Bic pen. It's small, flimsy, and not great. The idea is that it'll do the job. Mauro can confirm, it does not do the job. He lit the flare, hoping to get the attention of the helicopter, but the flare was pathetic and not very bright. The helicopter flew away. Oh boy. That's exactly what Mauro thought. He bypassed fear and went straight to desperation. In desperation, he started to scream. A scream that no one could hear, swallowed up by the sands that surrounded him. Why are you leaving me? he exclaimed. He began to lose focus. Desperation started to consume him. He was losing his reasoning. So at this time, Giovanni was still continuing the race. The race must go on. (laughs) Giovanni had started this race looking to find himself and was now finishing the race hoping to find his friend. He spent the final leg of the race without Mauro. The only way he would find out new information on his whereabouts was at the finish line. He ran with the idea of getting to the finish line as soon as possible to get some news. His hope was that when he got there, Mauro would have been found or was already at the finish line and they would have a laugh at the whole situation. He kept that in his mind as a focus to be able to finish the race for the last two days. When he finally crossed the finish line, Mauro was nowhere to be seen. Giovanni broke down, not able to enjoy his triumph as cameras captured the moment. He was grieving for his friend, who he was now sure was lost in the desert. This wasn't a time to celebrate. If you're missing for more than five days in the desert, the search parties stop and you're declared dead. Mauro had been missing for almost four days. Giovanni worried as they neared the fifth day with no sign of Mauro anywhere. How did his wife take it? (laughs) Well, Giovanni had a feeling of guilt and responsibility to go back to Cinzia and see her and hug her, but Cinzia got the news from Mauro's father in Rome. One day, she got a phone call from him asking where Mauro was. He'd read in the newspaper that a Roman long-distance runner was lost in the desert. Communication wasn't like it is today. So at first, this was local Roman news, and Cinzia in Sicily hadn't heard a thing. He was also in the desert, so she didn't expect a call until he'd finished the race. Listen, I don't know. I imagine he's about to finish the race. As soon as he returns to his hotel, he will call. That's what she said to his father. Chinsia thought that he was just jumping to conclusions, and since she hadn't heard anything, she wasn't really worried. Mauro's father, however, was certain it was him, and screamed down the phone at her. He's lost in the desert, then hung up. She probably had so many mixed emotions there. Yes. They said that despite all the anguish they were feeling, they were all actively angry at Mauro. He had known how dangerous it was, known what he had to lose and went anyway without giving his wife and children a second thought. It was a selfish whim and now the worst had happened. It was conflicting for them all. So I'm going to take us back to Mauro, who's now walking in a blind desperation through the desert. His food is gone. His water is gone. His hope is gone. Mauro needed a drink 
and having an empty water bottle, he did exactly what most of us were expecting at some point in this story would happen. He peed into it and drank his urine. We're getting to that part of the story, ladies and gents, so hold on for some extreme desert survival tactics. As Mauro walked through the desert, peeing into his water bottle, then drinking it, Crows started to follow him, circling above, anticipating his death and their lunch. He could feel his body getting weaker and weaker, slower and slower. His willpower was the only thing that gave him strength not to succumb. He contemplated what to do as he walked. What were his options? They were limited at best. But as Mauro continued to walk, he noticed something different in the distance. It looked like a building emerging from behind the sand dunes that consumed the majority of his view. Hoping to find someone there, he started to walk towards it. Oh my god, can you imagine the hope and the burst of energy that would give you? I know, right? Well, it's pretty short-lived, I'm sorry to say, because when he gets there, he opens the door to find a tomb with a dead person in it. It was the tomb and resting place of a holy man, nothing else. He sat inside for shelter from the harsh sun. It was clean enough, but smelt like rats. Then he heard a noise. Squeaking and fluttering noises. They were bats. You know, a lot of these survivor stories seem to contain bats. (laughs) That's what I thought when I was researching this. I was thinking, oh geez, more bats. Maybe it's a symbol of the survivor. (laughs) Well, it looks that way so far. So Mauro did what any desperate person would do and caught the bats to eat. I'm just going to warn you, this part is pretty grim, so feel free to skip 15 seconds. So Mauro took each bat, removed the head, took the knife and like a spoon in a yogurt pot, mixed up all the organs and entrails, drinking them out the gaping space where their heads used to be. That is vile. That is vile. But that's what true desperation will do to you. Anyway, he did this to 20 of them, then proceeded to bury each of these little bats he had killed to survive in a grave. Whilst he was out digging in the sands and burying these bats, he heard a distant droning noise. It was a plane or a helicopter. Mauro freaked out. He had another chance to be found. He leapt up and started to spell help me in the sand in large writing, hoping they could see it from the sky. He then proceeded to dig a hole in the sand. He threw in all of his synthetic materials, his sleeping bag included, and lit a fire. He tried to create a smoke signal to garner the attention of the plane that he could hear. As soon as he made the fire, another sandstorm hit, suffocating it immediately. Mauro was now alone, with no sleeping bag, no bag, no nothing, about to face another night of cold. The plane now just a dot in the skyline and the sounds slowly fading to silence. That moment was the most tragic, because you can see your life slipping away, he said in an interview. Your mental state would just go at that point. Yeah, and it did. He started to reanalyze his life and decisions. I thought, oh boy, I must have hurt someone. I thought I hurt my family. I must leave a sign. I have to seek forgiveness somehow. So Mauro decided to write a message on the walls inside of the tomb of the building he'd found. 
but he had no pen. So he found a piece of charcoal on the floor. And so Mauro started to write. He wrote a letter to his wife asking for forgiveness. I love you. I'm sorry if I hurt you. Forgive me if I wasn't there for you or the children. That type of thing. I'm also going to bring this part up at the end because I feel like I need to mention this as a contrast to something at the end of this whole ordeal. So please make a mental note of that letter. Anyway, he was pretty sure he was going to die. He was in despair. He wasn't afraid of dying, but suffering. So he took the pocket knife that he'd used to kill and eat the bats with and cut his wrists. He wanted to just slip away. He left an apology letter addressed to his wife on the wall in case they ever found his body. He then fell asleep. Mauro awoke the next morning to his horror. What? Pretty much what Mauro said too. (laughs) He was confused as to why he was still alive when he'd cut his wrists. Apparently, Mauro was so dehydrated and he didn't cut quite deep enough to cause massive blood loss. And the blood clogged the sliced veins and he didn't bleed to death. It was dry and crusted. It gave him the thought that maybe it's not his time yet. I just want to take you all back to Sicily for a minute to Cinzia, who's dealing with all the press. It had finally broken out that it was in fact Mauro who was missing in the desert. Journalists were hounding her and quite literally breaking into her house to get pictures and interviews. That must have been terrifying, especially raising three children. It must have been. It was on the news everywhere in Italy. What bothered Cinzia was that they spoke about him in the past tense, like he'd already died. And it really bothered her. After that many days, people really began to give up hope that he was alive. But not Cinzia. She gave an interview to the news at the time. Mauro is an incredibly strong man and also level-headed because he's always been an athlete and knows how to deal with difficult situations. If we slow down, I'm afraid people will stop paying attention. He will get himself found. You can't say we can't find him. Jinsia gave such an amazing description of the type of person Mauro is. Mauro has what I call insane sanity. Some call it resilience. But resiliency is getting knocked down and then getting back up. But with insanity, when you get knocked down, you never land. Mauro never hits the ground. (laughs) I love that. Me too. Giovanni had invited Mauro on this trip, so had a strong sense over the responsibility and the aid to search for Mauro. So Giovanni went back to Morocco. The idea was that he would go back and search for Mauro if they gave up on him and stopped searching. He wouldn't stop searching. Back to Mauro, who was just woken up after trying to kill himself the previous night. Realising he didn't die gave him new hope and strength. He decided to leave the little hut and search for help. This time, he felt certain he could survive. Even though he realised he was thin, weak and shaking, he could still make it. He could see the bones in his hands and his wrists were so small and bony that his watch would whip around it. He was dehydrated and his eye sockets were deep and sunken, but he walked nonetheless. As Mauro contemplated his state and ability to find help, from just behind a sand dune emerged a young girl. Oh wow, at last. (laughs) Yeah, she was stunned. 
Naturally, since he looked like death, she was too. He waved at her, greeting her. She took off running towards something. Mauro was in no fit state to run after her. But next thing he knows is a jeep pulls up and two soldiers hop out with guns. They blindfold him. It was the only true time he felt fear. He was thinking to himself, here we go. They're going to shoot me and leave me here. Oh my God, after all that. Right. Well, they soon realized who he was and brought him to the hospital where he received medical care and rehydration. Chinsia was at home when the phone rang. She struggled to pick it up. She knew they were about to call off the search and she didn't want to receive the bad news. Her mother, who was there, picked it up. It was Mauro. She flung the phone to Chinsia. Mauro asked, Have you already made my funeral arrangements? <laughs> she answered, We can't have a funeral without a corpse, so what were we supposed to do? Jensia's mother ran out onto the street, cheering and walking around the village where they lived, saying, he's alive, he's alive. And word spread like wildfire. People came out of their houses and flooded the streets, cheering and rejoicing at this miracle. Most of the world had presumed him dead. It became a media frenzy all over again. People were shocked. Mauro rejoined his wife in Rome when he was flown in from Algeria. He was weak, but alive. He had lost 30 pounds, or 16 kilos. Mauro suffered liver damage and damage to his eyes and stomach. He couldn't eat anything more than soups and liquids for months. It took him almost two years to recover. Journalists and friends and family would ask him how he survived but never asked him if he'd learned a lesson. He had already decided he was going to run it again. Four years later, Mauro ran the race again. It was the final nail in the coffin for Chinsia. She wanted a divorce. That's actually totally fair enough too. Yeah, personally, I feel the same. This is where I wanted to bring up Mauro's emotional epiphany and lamenting note he made to his wife. If you're thinking when you're all alone, oh, I've done something wrong, and then write a letter apologizing to her, then you feel that you've been given a second chance, you must realize that at some point your core characteristic is selfishness. Your epiphany means nothing, and I'm not trying to take away from the positive aspects of Mauro. He's committed, he's driven, determined, disciplined. He's the poster boy for accomplishments. Someone kids look up to, just less so if he's your own dad, because he chose those things and passions over you. I don't doubt that he was loving when he was with his children, and I'm sure he was loving and enjoyed the moments with them, but they weren't his first priority. Neither was his wife, or even his own well-being. His sense of competition, achievement, and winning was. To challenge oneself in the most intense way possible, don't get me wrong, it's an amazing accomplishment, but where's your sense of accomplishment when it comes to being a father? But anyway, I digress. That is a tough one, but selfishness did play a huge factor in all of this. He just loves it so much, doesn't he? It's his world. Yeah, and I need to add that Mauro actually ran the same race five more times after that, never placing higher than 12th. That is mad. I'm sure it couldn't be as bad as his first race, though. <laughs> well, Mauro's drive and need to return to the marathon and challenge himself again was too much for Chinsia. 
There is a documentary about this on Netflix called Losers, and there's an episode on Mauro and his experience where I got a chunk of this research from. They have a psychologist that explains why this tends to be the case. He explained that when people come back from this, they get addicted to it because they get a sense of freedom and independence from being out there alone, needing to survive, facing the harshest elements and coming out alive. It gives them a reassuring sense of self, something that when their lives are falling apart and their friends and family are begging them not to go back becomes more alluring and they just can't stop. Chinsia gave such an amazing summary of what it's like being married to someone like Mauro. Living with Indiana Jones is difficult because Indiana Jones is never there. Indiana Jones is always away and Indiana Jones thinks that life is made up of adventures. But life is the adventure. She doesn't take away from Marrow and his accomplishments, but says that it spoiled her life and that of her children. For him, it was the best time because he was proving himself, but for her, it was the worst. Because her husband kept leaving her with three young children to prove something to himself again and again, every year, despite the risk to his life. They just couldn't see eye to eye. Sad, but probably for the best. Yeah. Well, Giovanni wasn't surprised that Maro kept running and attempting the race. He, however, couldn't do the same thing. It pretty much traumatized him and the emotions connected were too strong. They eventually drifted apart due to life decisions. And to be honest, I haven't a clue what that meant and couldn't find out what it was. Mauro was always on the run and pushing himself in other areas. He doesn't regret the sandstorm and what happened in the slightest. He said that if it hadn't happened, he wouldn't have many of the things that he gained afterwards. I'll just let that sit for a moment. But he said the experience gave him a lot of joy in living life. What's Mauro doing now then? Well, over the years, Mauro ran eight more desert marathons apart from his other attempts at the Marathon de Sable. And as of last year, he was preparing to run a 7,000 kilometer race from coast to coast across the Sahara Desert, from Morocco to Egypt on the Red Sea. He also taught horse riding in the police force and fitness and endurance. I read somewhere that he became chief of police, but I don't know if that's actually real because I couldn't get any other sources to confirm. So yeah, that's the story of Mauro Prosperi. For all the bad points, you can't beat that zest for life and downright perseverance. He could definitely be a motivational speaker, I'm sure. And as always, we'll share pictures of the race site, the hut Mauro found for shelter, and a few other images relating to this story. You can check them out on our Facebook and Instagram. Just head over to Not Me, Not Today podcast or at Not Me, Not Today PC on Twitter. If you want to hear more, you can listen to the Not Me, Not Today podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasty goodness. Just click... <laughs> I can't say it for laughing. Just click subscribe, give us a cheeky five stars, and feel free to leave us a review. If you'd like to keep sending us your suggestions or you haven't got in touch yet, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch. Not Me, Not Today podcast at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, www.notmenottodaypodcast.com. Until next week, stay alive. Bye. Bye. Not me, not me, not today's podcast.